This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. Today, you can listen to a sneak peek of The Porcelain Maker by Sarah Freethy, narrated by Kristen Atherton. Under the strip lights, blue bottles made slow circuits round the room, and a low growl of thunder threatened in the distance. An oppressive stillness settled in. The spell was broken by the sudden clamour of the bell on the auction house door. A woman stepped inside, and a wave of sullen heat rolled in behind her. She was in her early fifties, deep brown curls shot through with silver. Obviously an outsider, she appeared almost alien in her elegance. Start listening to The Porcelain Maker by Sarah Freethy now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zara-Wapinski. And today I'm so excited to have Nina Simon here, author of Mother Daughter Murder Night, which you have probably heard about since it is a Reese's Book Club pick, New York Times bestseller, Indie Next pick, and many more. The novel is a big-hearted mystery about a trio of amateur sleuths, a grandmother, a single mom, and teenage girl who come together to solve a murder in their coastal California town. I love this quote from author Kathy Hayes, who says, no novel has ever made family drama or murder this much fun, and I definitely have to agree. Nina Simon writes crime stories about strong women. A former NASA engineer, slam poet, and museum director, Nina lives with her family in an off-grid community in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Mother Daughter Murder Night is her first novel. <clears throat> her first novel. Nina, welcome to A Bookish Home, and a big congratulations on Mother Daughter Murder Night. Thank you. I'm so honored by the um, way that readers are responding to the book, and I'm so glad to be here with you today. It was such a fun experience. I got to read the book early, and as I was just kind of obsessed with it as I was reading, I got that excitement of, oh, I just have a feeling that this is going to be a big book, and that would be so exciting and well-deserved. And so when it came out and I saw it was the Reese's Book Club pick and it's been getting all this buzz, um, I was just so happy. And it's fun to see a book come out in the world that, you know, really deserves that attention because it's hard to say that that murder is such a fun read, but it's this like, just feel good book in a way. And I'm kind of obsessed with these characters and they were so fun to read about and spend time with. And I don't like anything that's like too dark. And this definitely is not even though a murder mystery is at the heart. So um, I just highly recommend it to listeners. And yeah, I guess just to start, if you could tell um, listeners a little bit about um, the main characters that we get to meet, um, these women, and sort of what sparks this book with, you know, the murder and the mystery coming to their town. Yeah, well, thank you. And as you said, you know, I really I was trying to write a book, actually, you know, as you may know, I wrote this book as a love letter to my own mom and as a source, hopefully, of comfort and joy for us as we were going through a tough time with her cancer diagnosis. And so I just um, am somebody who's always been drawn to murder mysteries as a comfort, which, as you say, it is kind of weird. <laughs> but I think that there is something quite comforting about a story that starts with something terrible and then is about these characters who you can really root for and trust trying to figure it out and trying to repair the social fabric. And in this book, that's happening both in terms of solving a murder, but it's also about these three women, the grandma, the mom, and the teenage girl, 
renegotiating their own relationship together as a family. And I'm so glad you love the Rubicon family. I love them too. Um, We have Lana, who is the grandma. She is a tough, um, fierce Jewish LA businesswoman. And we're right in the beginning of the book. She's my favorite. I, I love her so much. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that because, you know, um, right in the beginning of the book, Lana gets cancer and she's forced to move in with her daughter and granddaughter. And of course, I wrote this book for my mom when she, who's a tough Jewish LA woman, you know, got cancer. And so I really feel like Lana is the superhero version of my mom. And one of my mom's biggest fears is that people will think um, Lana is you know, a witch with a different letter at the front. Um, and uh, and I, I no, people love Lana and she is outrageous. She is imperfect, but she's just a woman who has really taken life by storm and she is not going to let cancer slow her down. Um, and so Lana um, needs brain surgery. She can't live alone in her fancy condo in LA. So she crash lands into her daughter Beth's little cottage on the Monterey Bay, about five hours north of Los Angeles, um, in this very sleepy coastal town. And Beth escaped from Lana um, as a um, teenager, as a pregnant teenager. Um, And Beth and Lana are both very strong and independent, but in very different ways. You know, Lana is a businesswoman. Beth is a nurse. Lana is somebody who fiercely focuses on her own achievement. And Beth is somebody who really... um, you know, is proud of the way that she cares for others, both in her job and as a single mom to her daughter, Jack. And then you have Jack, the teenager, who is independent in her own right, but again, in a different way. You know, Jack is very outdoorsy. Beth and Jack live on the bank of Elkhorn Slough, which is a marine preserve, a real marine preserve here in the Monterey Bay. And every day, Jack is out on the water on her paddleboard. On the weekends, she guides tourists um, in kayak trips on the water. And so she also is um, a third independent woman in this trifecta. And, you know, I wanted to write a family where it wasn't like there was one Um, controlling character and everybody else follows along, but really where we could explore what's it like when you have three women who are strong in very different ways, different generations, different circumstances. And in my experience, um, in that case, it's not about changing each other um, or deciding who's in power. It's really about negotiating. How are we going to love each other? How are we going to take care of each other? How are we going to make sure that, you know, when our teenager Jack runs into a dead body in the slough and becomes a suspect, how do we protect Jack? How do we find a real murderer? Um, and how do we protect and grow this love between us as a family? And I think that, you know, for me, um, because I was writing this while I was caregiving for my mom, who, by the way, I should say is doing well (laughs) these days. Um, For me, I loved writing the murder mystery because, as I said, you know, I've always come to murder mysteries for comfort. My mom introduced them to me. I loved working with the suspects and the twists and the clues. But I always came home to that little cottage and those three Rubicon women and the the real love story of that family of strong women, because that was, um, you know, the 
the dream that I was trying to write every day, that my mom would be strong, that we would be together. Um, and, you know, I feel so blessed that not only are we able to share this story out in the world, but that my mom is strong enough that we've been able to really celebrate as the book has been growing and reaching readers too. That's so great. And was she worried at all at first of, you know, or, or was there any pushback of, I don't want you to write a character similar to me or going through some of the same things as me, or was she excited about the idea from the beginning? You know, this was my first novel, Laura. And so there was no idea in the beginning that this would ever be published. You know, what happened was my mom was really sick. We were together, which was lucky, but it was a stressful and scary time. And we needed a distraction. We needed an escape. And we've always loved murder mysteries, both of us. And so, and I needed something to do because I had downshifted at my job to care for her. And I've always been somebody who's very, you know, type A, productive oriented. And so I needed something to not be going um, stir crazy. And, um, and one day I just turned to her and I said, you know, what if I tried writing a murder mystery? And what if we made the detective someone like you? And so in the beginning, this whole book was just this very intimate project of my mom and me, you know, sitting in hospital waiting rooms and imagining these women. And actually, you know, so at the time there was no concern at all because we were starting from our own lives and inventing this world. And, you know, Lana, again, was this superhero where it's like, while my mom was being pushed around by the doctors, I wrote this character who was pushing the doctors around, you know, where my mom was yeah. stuck in bed. I wrote this character who was leaping out of bed. And in the early days of my drafting, um, my mom would sleep in and I would just sit on her bed next to her while she was sleeping. And I would just type these scenes and try and make her smile, you know, and Lana, well, her circumstances based on my mom, um, you know, her personality and who that character is, is very different from my mom. And so, you know, I would write these scenes. And then when my mom would wake up, I just sort of slide the laptop over to her. I'd go make her breakfast and I'd come back and we'd talk about what I wrote and what we thought should happen next. And it was just a joyful escape for us. So no, there was no, my mom had zero concern about this until we moved into, <laughs> oh, this is going to become a real thing. And, um, and I always send her notes when people say Lana is their favorite, because I, I just want to like remind her that actually this character, you know, was written with so much love and is being received with so much love. And yeah, Lana has rough edges. And frankly, I also like to say that um, everything good about Lana is based on my mom and everything bad about Lana is based on me. You know, I am selfish and impatient <laughs> sometimes. I can be a bull in a china shop sometimes. Um, my mom is an incredibly lovey, loving, you know, very funny and uh, and a very tough person, but in a very sweet way. Yeah, she was just such a unique character. I, I love how strong and funny she is and just the way she also pushes herself to, you know, try to make sure Jack is going to be okay. And she's so tough. So I love that. And, you know, I, I'm curious, because I haven't really heard how this, you know, happened. So, you know, at a certain point, I'm sure you were probably hearing from, you know, your editor or your agent, like, oh, I think this might be a big book. And then eventually, I don't know how it works, if you like get a phone call from Reese Witherspoon, but like, what was the evolution <laughs> from like, you know, I'm drafting this in bed and it's making yeah. my mom happy to like, oh my gosh, I think this is going to be a really big book. 
You know, um, it is a, a winding and weird path. I mean, the first thing I would say is that there was a real conscious moment. So it took me about six months to write the first draft. And as that was happening, um, my mom was getting better and better, which was great. And I was starting to think about what do I want to do next? Because my mom doesn't need me here all the time. My, you know, my husband and my kid need me. Um, and, um, and I quit my job to help my mom. And I was really conflicted about taking another job because I was scared that my mom was going to get really sick again and that I was going to want to be able to drop everything to be with her. And so I had been enjoying writing this book so much. It had been such a fun challenge and it really uh, engaged that worky part of me that wanted to learn and grow and push myself, but there were no um, expectations from others. You know, I didn't have any colleagues asking me for meetings or emails or things like that. I could work as hard as I wanted, but then when I needed to close it or I wanted to close it, I could. And so I decided, you know, with my husband, um, I'm going to, I'm going to give this a shot. I'm loving doing this. I think I would love to continue doing this. And so in a lot of ways, there, I think of there being this um, split between that beautiful, intimate project that was about me and my mom connecting and finding an escape, and then my decision to say, let me try and see if this could be the next stage of, you know, of my professional life and my career. Because, you know, Laura, this is my first novel, but my fifth career, and I'm somebody who... Um, <laughs> is very comfortable taking a leap into something new. And um, so I was excited about the possibility to do that with writing fiction. And so, you know, I didn't have an agent. I had to cold query and find an agent. And then I worked with my wonderful agent um, for eight months. She was like, you know, I love this book, but it needs a lot of work before we submit it. And so we worked through three more drafts before she said, okay, it's ready for me to submit it to publishers. Um, we sold it very quickly to William Morrow um, in, you know, under two weeks. And that was amazing. And then dove into editing there. And the whole time, the tiger on my tail was my fear that my mom would get worse or that she wouldn't be here when the book came out. And so I was just really motivated to get the book out into the world um, while she could be here to see it. And as it turned out, you know, there are ups and downs, but my mom has been on a great path for the last several months. And so it's been such a joy that when amazing things happen, like, you know, um, getting the public, public uh, publishing date uh, assigned or, um, you know, starting to see the cover or all those kinds of things that slowly happen in the months before a book comes out, every time I got to share it with my mom. And, you know, it's funny about this whole big book thing, because as you know, advanced readers and reviewers get to see a book um, sometimes as early as, you know, six months or more before it comes out. And so I think that there's this weird period, maybe especially for a debut author, where you're done. You've written the book, you've copy edited it, you've checked every comma. And, um, and now it exists in this world of publicity and advanced marketing and um, the book world starting to decide where this book sits. And I think that that was a very uh, curious and sometimes stressful time. And I admit that there were times when, you know, I thought, oh, maybe this book isn't going to go very far, but I know it's going to be in my local bookstore. You know, I know I'm going to get to share it with my mom. It's going to exist. And I think for me, that was always the, the like guiding light was I want 
my mom to be healthy and for us to share this book. Like that was my, that was my expectation. And it still seemed like a pretty big hope. So then, you know, when um, I got the call, it was a call from my editor. So um, I, my family spends a month, uh, a bunch of July um, where my husband's from, which is this very rural place in Washington state in Eastern Washington. And I was sitting there um, listening actually to Demon Copperhead on audio and pitting pie cherries because um, we pick a lot of pie cherries when we're up there. And I got this phone call that came through from a 917, a New York number that I didn't know. And I thought it was probably spam, you know, somebody trying to sell me a car warranty. <laughs> and, uh, but because I was listening to the audiobook, it was easier for me to just, you know, switch over. So I did. And I heard my editor's voice and she'd never called me before without like a you know, week ahead email scheduled <laughs> thing. So I knew something was up. And uh, she said to me, are you sitting down? And I was like, well, I'm, I'm pitting cherries. Yeah. I mean, I, and she's like, put down the cherries, <laughs> you know, what I'm going to do is going to change your life. And, um, and then she told me, you know, that, that it had been picked for the Reese's book club. And, um, immediately, you know, my very first question was, can I tell my mom? And fortunately, she's like, yes, you can tell your mom, but you cannot tell in, you can tell your husband, but you can't tell anybody else. And uh, so like, I couldn't tell my sister. I mean, that part was really, um, you know, like, felt like a long haul. But um, how far before publication do they tell you that? It really depends. Um, In in our case, it was actually pretty close. It was a couple months ahead. Um, I've heard that some of the big book clubs, it can be as much as six or seven months ahead, but some of them oh, it can wow. be just a month or two. So it really depends. And, um, and we just, you know, I just feel so grateful that that took this book on a journey where, I mean, I have met so many readers and also like, you know, I had this concept of, okay, Reese, obviously Reese Witherspoon is huge, you know, um, and this is a big deal and it's a big deal in the book world, but I didn't really get it until the book was out and I was meeting readers at events who told me, oh, you know, I stopped reading when I had my kids, but then Reese's book club got me back in, or my sister follows Reese religiously. And she told me I'd love this book. And she was right. And just meeting people who have been touched by and really inspired and motivated as readers um, by a celebrity book club has just been so amazing. And it just, um, I, you know, I've spent a long time, I used to be a museum director, so I've worked with a lot of artists and um, I can't really think of anything comparable in the art, in the visual art world in terms of, you know, some kind of fairy godmother who could anoint you in a way that not just the art world, or in this case, the book world would know about it, but that, you know, all kinds of people would be delighted and excited and want to connect with the story. And so, that has just been such a gift. And then also, you know, things like getting a starred review from library journal. I, I work, I've been working with public libraries and been a huge public library user my whole life. And so getting that endorsement, I love it when people send me, they're like, Oh, the Libby wait list in my town is, you know, 240 <laughs> people. That's huge like, though, because yeah, all the librarians going through even before Reese's book club. Cause I, I used to do this as a librarian, mm-hmm. like, Oh, it's got a star. And that looks like a really good one. I got to make sure I order that for the library. And then, you know, that's, yeah, that is huge. Those star reviews. It's, it's been amazing. And, and, you know, I, I, I just, um, I think that it's also still very hard for me. And I I think this is true for a lot of debut authors. You know, you asked, was my mom uncomfortable with this character being out there? You know, there's this, there's this 
vulnerability and this extreme weirdness that it's like, it's something you create on your laptop, you know, sitting on your mom's bed or in your kitchen or wherever you are. And then suddenly it's in the world. And um, I'm still getting used to that. And I'm, I'm still trying to really receive it with just the wonder and um, gratitude and excitement that it brings up. And, and most of all, you know, I just loved hearing from readers for whom it was that warm hug, you know, in a tough time or readers who themselves, they or their families have been touched by cancer. And I wouldn't say it's a cancer book, you know, that it doesn't, there aren't a lot of pages um, connected to cancer, but just the um, one reader who has cancer said to me, you know, I'm used to the idea that when I read a book, if a character has cancer, that's a signal that character is going to die. <laughs> and, um, um, you know, that she just said, you know, I'm I reading a book where the hero it has cancer is, you know, incredible. And that yeah. hearing that from somebody is just, it's so powerful. And and of course I share all of those, you know, beautiful sentiments with my mom as well. And um, I think it makes her a little more comfortable with a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, that's so nice. And, you know, just about the Reese's book club thing, I, I think I definitely enjoy seeing which books she picks, but then I also think she's, she does such a wonderful job with so many, like book to screen adaptations. And mm. I do hope, I don't know if you can say anything about this, but I do hope that this one does get made into a show or something, because I think it would lend itself so well. Um, so I hope that that comes down the line. Yeah. I mean, it, it has been option that that's come out. It actually was optioned by a different production company called Capital Entertainment. And now that the um, writer strike in LA is over, we're really excited to get started. And um, they've just been terrific in our early conversations about what this could be like. And, you know, I, I grew up in LA and uh, my mom is still there. And so it's just fun that um, that's a connection to a world that, you know, I was never in, but, um, but just, you know, is very adjacent to, to just, you know, it's the industry of Los Angeles. Right. And so um, it, yeah. it, it's a neat thing that brings me back home. Well, you know, the the book takes place in sort of coastal California, which I think is um, where you live now. And mm -hmm. it's really almost like a character in the book, it feels like. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the setting and kind of land in general have so much to do with the mystery. And mm -hmm. I just kind of wondered how you went about really capturing that setting and if you knew at the start that you wanted the setting to play such a big role in the mystery itself. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, I felt like for a first novel, I wanted to set it somewhere that I had easy access to, not right um, in my backyard, um, but somewhere that um, I could spend a lot of time doing research where I could meet people involved with that place um, because it just seemed daunting to imagine setting a book somewhere I'd only visited once or, or something like that. And so um, Elkhorn Slough is a marine preserve that actually my mom introduced to me when she was visiting up here once. Um, she had gone hiking there and um, I went out um, paddle boarding and I was just blown away that it is this very unusual place. It's the second um, biggest um, marine estuary on the West Coast after the San Francisco Bay. And so 
what it's like is there's this, you know, industrial marina, but then you paddle out under a highway past a power plant and suddenly you're in this incredible spooky marshland with otters and sea lions and egrets and all different kinds of birds and jellyfish. And it's this very unusual um, place that exists, I feel like, on the edge of two worlds. So you have this natural wild world, but you also have this industrial human world of the power plant and the highway and the marina. Um, You have these rural rolling farms on these hills, um, but then you also have all of these different government and nonprofit entities trying to conserve and protect the wetland. And I always feel like places that exist on the edge of two worlds or on the border are places where there's a lot of conflict and where there's conflict, there can be crime or murder, you know? And so (laughs) I think that I like the fact that it's a place that both is a place I see as a place of incredible beauty. And I hope that some of that beauty shines through and how I wrote about it, but also a place that is spooky, also a place um, where there's a real um, ongoing and complicated argument about what should happen to the future of this place. And I think as I was looking for um, what kind of murder I wanted to do, what kind of motive, you know, in coastal California, there is nothing as um, big a source of power or conflict as land. And that is true historically, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, land here has been a source of violence, a source of war, um, a source of crime, but also a source of profit, a source of security. And so I, um, as somebody who's always been an environmentalist and always been working in nonprofits, I was really curious to dive into the world of land politics, not something I've worked in, but something where the kinds of players who are involved, the kinds of issues that are involved are very close to me. And and I, again, I feel like for a first novel, it's sort of like, I was afraid that if I wrote about exactly where I live or put a murder in a museum, you know, which is a professional world I know so well, it, it kind of was like I was too close to it, but it's sort of like, you know, your neighbor's house, um, your friend's job, you know, you you can see those kinds of worlds a little better. And um, I, I just loved diving in in that way to the land politics and to this setting. Um, I also think that in terms of like the setting as a character, um, you know, a lot of that came through the edit because I'm somebody who lives in nature. I love being in nature, but I was really nervous in writing this book that I didn't want it to focus too much on the things I love. I didn't want it to be self-indulgent. I also didn't want it to come off as preachy. And so, um, in fact, you know, the first times I ever wrote about the slough, I wrote about them from Lana's perspective. And Lana, coming from L.A., thinks this, you know, slough is a dirty mud pit. Um, She thinks it's kind of (laughs) gross. And I actually wanted to write it from that perspective because... I felt like if I wrote from a vantage point that was not my own, I'd be less likely to get into my own self-indulgence. And it was actually my editor who later was like, no, let's do more from Beth and Jack's perspective. Let's, you know, tease out. Yes, it's gross to Lana, but it's also beautiful to Beth and Jack. And let's play with both those things. And so I really credit my editor for um, encouraging more and more of the nature writing as I went through the drafts. Yeah, it's done so well. And I definitely loved, I thought the land politics side of things was really fascinating too. And just so many different aspects of this book, you know, delighted me and compelled me and 
just definitely one of my favorite books I've read lately. And, you know, it got me wondering, because I do always love to hear from authors, you know, what some of their recent favorite reads are. Are there any books you'd want to recommend to listeners? And I'm kind of curious along with that, if you're going to say like other mysteries or if you read, Mm. you know, completely different things, you know. Yeah. I read pretty widely. I'd say I read everything from like literary and commercial fiction to a lot of mysteries. I read some rom-coms too, which I love for, you know, I think some of the, I I loved playing with dialogue in this book. And I feel like I learned a lot from rom-coms about how to write dialogue that really snaps. Um, But, um, but, you know, mysteries are my heart. And I feel like even as I've become more of a writer, I've become a, a more widely read reader in mysteries. And I guess two books that really touched me this year um, that both are mysteries, although I would say, you know, kind of like Mother Daughter Murder Night, you could read them even if you're not a mystery person. Um, one of them is a book that came out earlier this year in the spring called What Happened to Ruthie Ramirez. It's by a woman named Claire Jimenez, and it's about a Puerto Rican family of women in Staten Island. And um, uh, the, there are two sisters um, who are young adults and their mom. Um, and there was a third sister, Ruthie, who disappeared when she was 13. And it's now 12 years later, and the two sisters think they see Ruthie on this horrible reality show that they're watching late at night. And it's about this family trying to figure out what happened to Ruthie Ramirez. And it's just the interiority is incredible. I would say it definitely um, is a more literary side mystery. And um, the story, Claire Jimenez really gets deep into each of these women's psyche. And I just love books that really do rich interiority in that way. And what happened to Ruthie Ramirez does that beautifully. I will say, while there is resolution, it is not the kind of book you read to find out who did it. Um, it's a book you read to really get into what is it like for these women who have been through this terrible thing. Um, and then the other book I read this summer that that came out this summer, um, one of my absolute favorite authors, you know, I think he's just a master of mystery, but also a master of interiority is Dennis Lehane. You know, he's probably most famous for Mystic River and Gone Baby Gone, but just he's so prolific. And his newest book is called Small Mercies. And it is about an Irish Catholic woman in Boston um, during the race riots that happened when Boston schools were going to be integrated. And her daughter goes missing. And she, this woman, Mary Pat, will do anything. She will go to hell and back to find her daughter or to find out what happened to her daughter. And again, you know, Lahane is so good at interiority and he slips into very different characters to Irish Catholic characters, to black characters. Uh, It's a historic book, but you know, this is not deep history. Um, This is 50 years ago in Boston and um, just, it is a story about, I guess both these books what happened to Ruthie Ramirez and Small Mercies feature very fierce mothers um, and, you know, missing daughters. And they both just blew me away. I also say Small Mercies is very violent. Unlike what happened to Ruthie Ramirez is not a violent book. Small Mercies is a very violent book. Yeah. Oh, I'll definitely have to go check those out and I'll link to them 
for listeners. And um, yeah, it's been so fun to get to hear from you. Um, I really hope that listeners go pick up Mother Daughter Murder Night. And um, yeah, best of luck as you continue to bring the book out into the world. And, and I will very much look forward to reading whatever comes next because I am hooked. Um, so thank you again. And um, yeah, it was so great having you here. Thank you so much. And as you've probably heard, you know, I love hearing from readers. Um, you can find me online at ninaksimon.com or on all of the socials at Nina K. Simon. So would love to hear from you if you read Mother Daughter Murder Night and um, if it touches you in some way. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.